This evening we'll begin our Dhamma talk evening with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama over 2,500 years ago. So, settling into your seat, closing your eyes, or if they're, you're used to practicing with your eyes slightly open, that's fine. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all the dark and potentially destructive forces of the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, where and how you are? Just who do you think you are, anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of heart, and mind perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit 
maybe not always quite like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit, we practice with sincerity and with determination. At home alone, and maybe with your sangha, maybe with your practice community. And now, here, in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, to deepen, and to mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we just keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore in a bit more depth the quality or the factor of mindfulness that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice. As we talked about a little bit last night, mindfulness. As we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point, or we could say a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than from the head. In support of this, it's helpful to really deeply relax into the body with a bright attention, relaxing from head to toe, letting the whole body, heart, and mind deeply relax into a simple, direct presence. And with an open heart and an open mind, simply hearing. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion and impartiality and renunciation. The very conditions that we have right now here on retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm and concentrated mind are key factors for the mind and the heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind that are necessary for awakening. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief, he called it. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really begins to be established, 
It's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So breaking this word down, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? And I think it's a really good question. Especially now with the breadth of the mindfulness movement that's going on these days. It's a wonderful thing with the mindfulness movement that's going on, but also in many cases, some of its depth and some of its potency have been somewhat dissipated. So what is it that makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, mind, touch, heart, absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning in this case, absolutely believing what comes through to be known, what comes to be known through cultivating a very powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, past experience, ideas of how we think it is, or how we think it should be, or how we think it could be. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it, and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is, which sometimes may appear so clear and simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to remain and meet the experience of the moment with a very fresh, connected intimacy, to come very close and to see how it is. 
Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet, at the same time, it's not a sticky, fixed kind of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. And again, as I mentioned last evening, it's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, bodily sensations, moving the body, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, experience that might be difficult to be with. We open to it all, no parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, heart, and mind. Living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. In a sense, we lose our self in what is, so that there's just what is. Without anything added or needing to be added, and without anything taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or maybe recreating a sense of a separate self creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of simply living in the action. As you engage in the three creative practices that are offered during this two weeks, movement, seeing, drawing, and writing, with mindfulness being the underlying root of your practice, the opportunity to mindfully investigate and see the presence of freedom or the presence of suffering in relationship to self-view, in relationship to the erroneous view of a separate, solid, static me. 
your experience of freedom or your experiences of suffering will become clearer and clearer as we practice this way. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analayo puts it this way in his book Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And this is from the Venerable Analayo. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for sati-patana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. no matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope and maybe we even assume that much of our life experience in any given time is permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we, many of us, or most of us, humans, want life to suit our passing fancies, to suit our expectations, to suit our deepest desires. And as it is in relationship to this, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish all of this through external experiences by getting this or that or him or her doing this and that 
going here and there. And we go for, we try for this sustaining satisfaction that we so much want and this sustaining contentment that we want through the constantly changing world of our senses and thoughts as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many of you know, at least at times, none of this really, really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experiences of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and we look closely in order to sense, see, and know our experience directly. It's through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really, truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect or right or useful moment than the one that we're in, we have truly and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of deep intimacy. The deepest intimacy with our experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and matures, becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. So how is it in this moment? And this moment? And this present moment? This is a basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice and all schools of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing is in experiencing the mind? How is it really not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be, or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here. 
right now. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago, I was uh, teaching a class <clears throat> here in, uh, in, <coughs> in Taos at the Taos Mountain Sangha. <coughs> Excuse me. A weekly class. And uh, we would have a class time and then people would go home and use and practice with and explore what we were discussing uh, in that particular week. And then they'd come back the next week and share at the beginning of the class a little bit of what that week was like, the week of practice was like. <clears throat> so <clears throat> at one class, one of the students came in and she said that that morning she had been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden many, many times. But she said that that morning it felt like it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden. And that was quite, a, quite an experience for her. And then her mind took a huge leap and she said, how have we survived for so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And everyone in the class sat up straighter at that moment and minds got brighter. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. One way of looking at this <clears throat> is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is, blur, is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas and preconceptions and opinions and judgments and hopes and fears and similar past experiences. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to really see things as they truly are, as though for the first time. Seeing without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's called beginner's mind. Quite a number of years ago, when one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, I went to visit the family, my son and granddaughter and my grandson, when they were living in Pennsylvania. And my granddaughter or my daughter-in-law, excuse me, my daughter-in-law and my grandson and I took a walk down the hill behind the house. And my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson picked up a pine cone off the ground. It was the first time he'd ever seen a pine cone. So he picked it up, held it in his hand, looked at it, turned it every way possible, looking very carefully, put it up to his nose, smelled, lots of smells, stuck his tongue out, licked it, tasted it, really, really investigating this thing that he'd found that he'd never seen before. Every way he could come up with to investigate it through all the senses. Well, my daughter-in-law and I watched this and <clears throat> we dutifully, as a good grandmother and mother, said, um, it's a pine cone. 
our group, my grandson looked up at us, kind of, yeah. And he repeated, yeah, pine cone. But, you know, he wasn't so thrilled about the title. And he went on investigating, because that was much more interesting and much more fun. And he was actually finding out a lot more. The name was useless, really. But he was a good boy, so he did say pine cone. Back to his direct experience with his fresh, open, beginner's mind, which I have never forgotten. It was really a profound lesson for me. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or more accurately, relearn, to bring into our life or back into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine the best medicine to make us well in the deepest and the most profound sense. There are four domains, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or one's interpretations of it. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a very careful attention to. And as each of you know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breathing is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or at the heart center or the sensorial experience of the breath coming into and moving through and out the whole body. With this, I have personally been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and breadth of the purification of the heart and mind that happens. As well as for what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a very simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So, Right now, just for a moment, close your eyes and let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the simple sensations of in-breath, simple sensations of out-breath in the nostril area, or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the chest area, or the whole body breathing. With as little self as possible.
And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control or trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you just simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? It's very important to notice this without judgment, without self-recrimination, just simply noticing. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. body in the body, mindfulness of the four postures, not our ordinary everyday quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate and ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position, standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body and getting up and down flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body and the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement. Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be simply known as standing? Sitting, just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking without the layer I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once many years ago, one of my Burmese teachers, the Venerable uh, Saida Upandita, asked me in a practice meeting, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations? Well, for just a moment when he asked me this question, I was quite caught by it, which in retrospect I realized that it was kind of a test of my practice at the time. But very quickly during that practice meeting, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Sayadaw. No, no, there's no woman, no man, no anybody known when I'm directly connected and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So a really good observation and a question that you might ask yourself at some point 
along the way of your practice. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of Mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from, and how it feels in our body. I don't, in some independent, mysteriously isolated way, stand up or not stand up, or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separate, isolated I or me, we'll eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, which may often be overtly or subtly related to past and maybe long past experience. As mindful awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begins to take hold, which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body or my body? A number of years ago now, I had a student named Roy. He was a very, very deeply dedicated, long-time practitioner right up until his dying moment, and he died of AIDS-related complications. One afternoon, I was sitting with him in the Taos Hospital here, the Holy Cross Hospital down in Taos, as I did many afternoons. And he was lying in his bed, and there wasn't much left of his body at that point. And he was lying there still, and he stretched his arm up overhead and he's looking at it very, very carefully and he's turning it around one way and then the other way just looking and looking and looking with tremendous interest and then he said in a very cool and yet odd way wow that's all he said 
the form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some particular experience or Roy's body, Roy's arm and whole body being as thin and as light as a reed at that point. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made. But in truth, they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear and unfettered and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. All 32 of them, as it's taught in the classical Buddhist text. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and all the fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known, such as the intestines, the bladder, the heart, lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice isn't one that's very often taught here in the West. Though it can be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and it being mine, it being me. And I have no doubt that each of you have noticed many parts of the body, even during this first full day of the retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are you with the hair on your head? or the lack of it, or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes going on therein? Or to a moment or many moments of the experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin, this bag of flesh, that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non 
self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns and judgments about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful aspect of practice, beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. In some words from the Buddha, abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a meditator abides contemplating the body as a body. So let's consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa. Rupa is the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I don't identify as a woman or a man. I'm thin or fat. Not too thin, not too fat. I'm tall or short. I'm of average height. I'm good-looking, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I'm dark-skinned. I'm light-skinned. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is large. My nose is too big. I have a small nose. I have a cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak. I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within days, or just within moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than really just a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So a personal example. In the last few years, I've shrunk more than two inches. I have, in all my adult life, identified myself as being a person of average height. And now I'm a short person and getting shorter minute by minute. Another important and 
potentially profound, insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies, in essence, are no different than any other form, really no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any other and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially, a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form. One aspect of the reality of how it really, really is. How, what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, as they're called, or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, or wind, which are interchangeable, air and wind. Through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. When you're sitting, when the body's moving, standing, or lying down. So this evening I'd like to just mention the characteristics uh, and the sensations that are expressed, express these characteristics through our direct experience of the sensations in the body. And as I mention them, uh, you will certainly be familiar with them as some, some of them as your own experience, although you may not be relating them to earth, water, fire, and air or wind. The sensations that express the earth element of which we are are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The bodily sensations that express the water element of which we are flowing, cohesion, the element of fire, the sensations that express the fire element of which we are, heat and warmth, coldness and coolness, and the sensations that we experience that express the air or the wind element are supporting and pushing. And each and all of these bodily sensations are very readily available for us to experience and to be mindful of in any moment. (laughs) 
How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? The body in its elemental nature. Essentially, no different from any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds, maybe other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's really possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and of grasses and continued over time to observe them through all of the changes that things do as and after they die, the change, all the things that change, changes that things go through as they die and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat with a few friends in Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of an ocean, on the shore of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, for a couple of months of practice together, I had the great good fortune, maybe good fortune only in the world of uh, Dhamma practice, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. So every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a little while, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a heart-mind changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until a few years ago was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, who is the most senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and asked if he uh, would be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he said they were pretty reluctant to do so. He said that all of his sense doors, once he went into the morgue, all of his sense doors, now the morgues in Thailand, at least at that time, probably were not cooled, like they probably are in this country and maybe now in Thailand. So it was... A lot going on in there. (laughs) He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, the term he used, were fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell. 
which he said almost drove him to run out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present, and little by little, it became tolerable. He said, just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay all around him. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, stuck to the ceiling, which he at first found quite puzzling. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could actually explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen. And it didn't. He was very glad it didn't happen. He said that when he went back out on the street, he saw people in a radically new way, with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, probably first and foremost our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. Many, For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that we're close to and that we care about, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or just simply the taken-for-granted familiar form. I think that it's actually, what actually is strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, our mind and our body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress. Cutting through clinging. Cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And we find that when we connect and look carefully at the body, in the body we find sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, feelings, and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body, to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will, actually. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, which is a very 
profound aspect of metta, an act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself, not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience of the body. In such moments, we feel and we intimately know our activity is belonging to life. Some very simple and ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat, and of course also outside of a formal retreat setting. So for instance, we might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. In that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the hand and the wrist is doing. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold or turning away from very hot hot weather experience. We catch ourselves and consciously with mindful awareness rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of some degree of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment, to feel and to know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. In relationship to the various movement practices that some of you might be doing during this retreat, maybe some stretching, maybe some yoga, and with the upcoming movement practices that Wynn will be offering. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves, not in a self-centered way, but as an act of respect and as an act of loyalty. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. Someone once said, and it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available full of life and full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training really to be fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body's an excellent meditation object, subject. It will always tell the truth. So, for instance, if you break a leg, the body's not going to give off a pleasant feeling. It doesn't have the capacity to get lost in the past or the capacity to project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between the formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, 
mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling just too overpowering to be with. As I think we all know, at least some of the time, to some degree, we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies, consequently cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of this path and its fruits uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to our particular conditioning. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha again. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. So in closing this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that you can offer yourselves anytime. And I'll put it up on the board so you can offer it to yourselves anytime. <clears throat> it's uh, a very short sutta from the Majjhimanakaya. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.